This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Now, I'm, believe it or not, (laughs) uh, a a friend and I are actually building a, um, doing some work on app-based video games based upon thinking fast and slow. Oh, wow. I know. Um, And of course- So am I, so I'm very- I know. (laughs) We're doing something that's just light and cheerful um, initially to uh, change some of the standard games to uh, changing emotional states of emojis from smiley and frowny to, you know, an appropriate target state, you know, so we're taking a tower defense game and making people happy before they get to university. We're taking a blocks game where you're just doing a block shooter and making unhappy faces, happy faces, and then they grin and then they sublimate. So it's a very positive, leave people happy thing, but it's very minor superficial stuff compared to what you're doing because you're doing cranky uncle. So let's talk about cranky uncle. I, I just for the audience who haven't actually read the, haven't seen the great stuff that John is doing or read the review that we published that Zach published with me and Clean Technica reviewing Cranky Uncle. You know, he's a cartoonist as well as an Australian, as well as a cognitive scientist, as well as having a physics background, um, and as well as being a, an Australian who moved to the United States in the era of Trump, which we'll get to as well, I think. So talk about Cranky Uncle and, you know, why do you start with how do you? balance being a cognitive scientist and being a daily cartoonist as well because you every day you post a new caricature of somebody and you do a little youtube video clip and you know it's part of your cranky uncle stuff so so talk about your the cartoonist thing uh, well the cartoonist thing firstly is is has typically been just something i've been doing on the side while being a full-time scientist so doing it every day like i have been over the last month is kind of killing me <laughs> It's certainly not something I could maintain forever, but um, but uh, probably I, maybe I should take a step back and tell you how I got to this point because it's it's really a research question more than a. Um, Please tell me you're going to use the word agnotology. I read that in your thesis this morning, and I was like, oh. I, I rarely get to see words like that, and it's just such a great word. So please tell me you're going to use I agnotology. Can certainly. Uh, I, I will shoehorn the word agnotology. <laughs> and if I forget, remind me. Okay. Um, so, so for the past decade, um, as a scientist, I've been research, researching the question, what do we do about misinformation? And really that's two questions. How do we understand the, or what, Im, what impact does the misinformation have? And then how do we undo it or even... Um, proactively, preemptively prevent it from doing damage in the first place. Uh, and so I spent five years doing a PhD at the University of Western Australia researching this question. And 
really the answer that I came out of my PhD with was the answer is inoculation. We neutralize misinformation by explaining the techniques used to mislead. Uh, so in other words, the way to stop science denial from spreading is to expose people to a little bit of science denial in a weakened form. Oh, so it's using a weakened um, a virus as part of a vaccination, but it's a mental virus and a mental vaccination. Oh, that's a really great um, way of putting it. Yeah. So I, I never thought of the inoculation thing and extended it. I, I, I have a background in public health and outbreak, <clears throat> outbreak management. I help build probably the most sophisticated outbreak and communicable disease management solution that's used for the pilgrimage and Hajj and it's used across Canada and stuff like that. So epidemiology and I was just actually publishing something on that this morning. But it's, it's, I'd never thought of ex the model that I've seen you do many times, which is use a weakened form in an explicit place in a three-part communication is very analogous to using the slightly denatured or weakened virus. So that, that's, a, that's really interesting. So go, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just excited about that. So. Oh, I mean, um, it's really interesting to hear your response because I thought just using the term inoculation made it self-evident that vaccination was the metaphor we were borrowing, but obviously I need to be more explicit in the way I communicate it. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's, more the new, it's more the nuanced assertion of the weakened form of the disinformation. That right. was the, the, and this is the back to people respond to confident, simple stuff versus nuanced stuff. I was digging into the nuanced stuff because I'm a nerd. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> So don't, my, my guidance to you is don't take me as a typical audience and make, <laughs> make your communication more nuanced. You're doing a great job. Um, okay. So after my PhD, then my next question was if inoculation is the general approach we need to um, take in order to neutralize misinformation, specifically and practically, how do you do that? Uh, and I, I began by um collaborating with some critical thinking philosophers at the University of Queensland in Australia. And we developed a critical thinking methodology, a step-by-step -step procedure for taking a misinforming statement or potential misinformation, deconstructing it and going through all these critical thinking steps in order to identify, are there any reasoning fallacies in this argument or is it logically valid? And we having developed that methodology, applied that step-by-step -step process to 50 of the most common myths about climate change and identified uh, all the reasoning fallacies in each of the uh, different myths. And, and so what, that, what I took from that research was two things. Firstly, uh, if you need to inoculate people um, and deliver misinformation in a weakened form, the way to weaken it is by explaining the misleading techniques, the way that the misinformation uh, deceives and or misleads. And you need the reasoning fallacies, the logical fallacies in the misinformation in order to do that. So, A, I had this useful tool for developing inoculating messages. But um, the second thing was, well, well okay, we've, I've got all the fallacies in, this, in these different uh, myths what's the best way to deliver it? And a really interesting, um, just a little side note in the paper that we wrote, um, one of the philosophers wrote a 
this thing about how there are a lot like um, philosophers, critical thinking philosophers have a variety of techniques for explaining uh, logic or exposing logical flaws. Usually you have to do like a six-month critical thinking course in order to, to master them. But a really powerful, user-friendly, accessible way to explain um, logical flaws is parallel arguments. And that involves taking the logic of your misinformation and transplanting it into a parallel situation. Usually something absurd, a bit extreme, in such a way Either that in a bush versus a spreadsheet in a bush, just channeling your one of your cartoons. Maybe I'd have to think about whether that was a good example or not. Uh, okay. Uh, well, well, let me give you an example. All right. Let's take the logic of the argument: it's cold, therefore global warming isn't happening, uh, which you actually hear surprisingly um, a lot of times. Uh, that logic is exactly the same as being in a situation where. You've just eaten a big meal and you argue, I'm full, therefore world hunger doesn't exist. Or to take one of your other cartoons, it's dark, therefore the sun doesn't exist. Yes, yeah, that's that's the parallel argument I typically use. I'm getting a bit bored with it because I've used it. Again, so <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm switching to the world hunger. <laughs> now, there's another piece here. To pull it back to thinking fast and slow, I, I'm thinking of framing and I'm thinking of... Um, establishing, oh, there, there's a, a term for establishing a reference point from which all cognition afterwards automatically starts. The example that Kahneman uses is uh, it, are, how are redwoods taller or shorter than 180 feet or 1,200 feet? Two different questions in the, to two different test groups in the study. And the people who said 1,200, you were know, asked the 1,200 feet one said, well, they're probably around seven or 800 feet. And people who are asked the 180 foot one were said, oh, they're probably around 300 feet. And the gap was 41% just from that anchoring fact that was presented in the question. But uh, this, this framing, this, this cognitive thing that just pulls out associations and draws us to it, I see it very clearly in your work in your how you present stuff because you start with the fact then you present the disinformation and then you present why the the disinformation was wrong and the fact was right and so you start with reality though and this is something i think lewandowski coached me with around my bernard on wind uh disinformation site which is a weak and very narrow you know Anti, uh, anti-wind disinformation site that was much less effective than your skeptical science site. But still, the guidance held true. Don't repeat the myth first. So is that cognitive thinking and that structuring very clear in your mind about that? Or am I in, um, extrapolating wildly from what I'm seeing? Well, there's definitely cognitive research behind um, the way that I structure debunkings. I have never really thought about it from an anchoring point of view. I think there are possibly different dynamics. Um, it's an interesting thought. I would have to think more whether the psychological dynamics in anchoring are, are, are similar or to what's happening here. Um, I'm, I'm inclined to think not because the brain is complex and there's a lot of different ways that we think about things. Uh, but I, I can tell you about the research that informs this approach. Perfect. 
the more familiar we are with information, the more likely we are to think that it's true. And so what um, early research into misinformation has found is that if you put the emphasis in a debunking on the myth rather than the facts, then over time after they've read it, the details fade and often the thing that you put the most emphasis on is the only thing that they remember. And so if the only thing they remember was the myth which you repeat in the headline of your debunking or your fact check, then uh, there is there runs the risk that um, they could end up believing the myth more after they read your debunking than before. Now, that said, that, um, that, that research is... The, the results are nuanced. It, it depended on the age of the person. Some researchers have had trouble replicating that result. Mm. So, um, so it's it's not a it's not a clear cut situation. But the general dynamic that putting the emphasis on the facts and communicating the facts as simply as possible, um, uh, as as best practices for debunking, uh, are on sound. Um, this is theoretical this- foundations. This is Zach. I just want to chime in here because this, this, uh, this point has sort of ruined me for a decade because it's like you constantly see people debunking things by highlighting the, the myth first in a very loud way, often a very you know, pronounced way, bolded, uh, whatever. And, uh, and it drives me crazy now because it's like you, know, you just constantly see people reinforcing myths they're trying to debunk. Uh, and you know, I see it on all kinds of topics, but I, I follow a lot of political stuff. And um, it's especially irritating to me on news, web, news political news um, channels because uh, they do it so frequently. It's so repetitive. And then you also just know there's so many situations where people have the TV on in the background, like going through an airport or at a restaurant or hotel or something, and they just hear it over and over and over without even really focusing on on it. But they just hear the claim often presented as a – even people who are very sarcastic will present it in a way that just sounds like someone's making the claim strongly. Um, but it's, it's something, you know, on the positive side of, I've been very careful on Clean Technica for the past decade to, to try to not reinforce myths and, and to try to, to deal with those kind of um, issues in the, in the proper way, thanks to your guidebook. Um, so I just want to give a big thanks and also a little bit of a complaint that you've sort of ruined me for paying attention to anyone trying to debunk myths. <laughs> there's, there's, a, um, there's an XKCD cartoon um, where it says, I think it's it's something like how to how to ruin a person's life by pointing out um, bad kerning in billboards or something like that. <laughs> like pointing out what? Bad what? Bad kerning, as in the space between letters. Uh-huh. And I've got a bit of a graphic design background, so I see bad kerning all the time, and um, and, it, and it's very frustrating. So, so if I've um, also ruined your life by <laughs> by illustrating bad debunking practices and you're welcome yeah. and i'm obviously joking but I'm, i mean uh, so, somewhat joking but uh, but it's also just uh, i really have hugely appreciated that tip um and i've edited so many articles where i've had to rearrange things because i could see people emphasizing the myth uh, very strongly before 
debunking it. So yeah, I mean that whole gu- that guidebook is just required reading for anyone who wants to communicate communicate anything effectively, in my opinion. So big it's, thank you. What's the guidebook's formal name and how do people find it? Because we can't say you got to go read it and then not tell them how. So the the handbook is called the debunking handbook. Um, the URL is sks.to slash dbh, as in debunking handbook. Is your name on it? If they Google debunking handbook John Cook, will they find it? Uh, almost definitely, yes. Good. There we'll we be go. sure. We'll be sure to add the link and name to the to the article notes as well. So I, I have another thing that's really interesting, which is I've discovered recently that not everybody knows what XKCD is. Oh wow! And I know. So I just want to say that anybody who hasn't found XKCD, those letters, no spaces, no kerning that you have to worry about, um, by Randall Monroe, go find it now and waste a day having a good time. Hmm. But I, I am can, can I go back to Zach's point for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was at a misinformation conference, I think it was in Toronto, and there was a person from Snopes, the back yes. website, there and at some point uh, what, during the Q&A after their presentation a researcher pointed out you always repeat the myth in the headline and you're reinforcing yeah. the myth why why don't you you know put the fact in the headline and you know avoid that that potential problem and the Snopes person said if, if we didn't put the myth in the headline, we wouldn't get the traffic. Yeah. I, I was actually going to ask you, I'm looking at a Snopes headline right now, and that was where I was going to lead this, is because skepticalscience.com starts with the fact, then says the myth, then has the discussion. Um, your cartoons of explanations have, here's the fact, here's the weakened disinformation, here's the discussion. But Snopes, here's the myth. Yeah, so I, I think there's two things in that. Firstly, I can see the conundrum they're in because the way Google works, the way search engines work is um, you need to have the keywords of the myth in the headline in order to come up in search results. And so if they don't do that, then people aren't going to find their fact check in the first place. So that's the kind of catch-22 where technology is conflicting with human psychology. And, and that, that's a tricky one. The second thing is, and now I've forgotten it because I got so excited talking about the first point. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe we can pull this back a bit. And if you remember the second point, we can do that. But what I was thinking about was inoculation is a slow thinking requirement. In order to, for inoculation to work, when people are exposed to a fallacy or disinformation, they have to have some trigger which invokes you know, the you know, relatively lazy system two or slow thinking in order to step through the analysis. Is this a significant challenge for inoculation? There's some really interesting work by Joshua Compton uh, from, I think he's from Dartmouth. Uh, on this exact dynamic that you're talking about Uh, because there are two elements to an inoculating message. First, there's a warning of the danger of being misled. Second, there are the counter arguments which explain how the techniques, the fallacies, the, the ways that you are potentially going to be misled. 
And essentially those two elements, the warning and the counter-arguments, are system one and system two. The fast warning appealing to your emotional response, oh, wow, there's a threat. There's a threat of being misled. And then the system two slow thinking, here are the the logical fallacies, here are the reasoning errors, and and it's just much more um, requiring um, slow reason thinking to process that information. And what uh, Josh's research has found is that it's the warning that does most of the heavy lifting in inoculating messages. It is the fast thinking part of the inoculation that has the most impact on actually inoculating people. That's a really interesting insight. Um, Basically, it's increasing the skepticism about what they perceive and having some pattern for recognizing that it may be attempting to deceive. Uh, essentially, yeah, I think you that little thing you added there about detecting the pattern is is the um, is the whole basis of my cranky uncle game. But um, but yes, it is uh, it is recognizing yeah that that you might um, we're, we're being skeptical of sources. Um, but the danger of that is. You can make people skeptical to the point of cynicism mm-hmm. uh, where they're skeptical of all sources. And so that means that if you inoculate in a kind of shotgun approach as opposed to a more surgical approach, um, you risk making people not only inoculating them against misinformation, but even inoculating them against accurate information and, and um, genuine news as well. Uh, and the probably the most, I'd say, socially impactful or societally impactful example of that kind of broad brush shotgun inoculation is Donald Trump's fake news meme or, or talking point. He just says fake news, and that causes you know a whole like one third of the population to be cynical about any mainstream news, uh, which is very dangerous and harmful when when. The public distrust institutions, including mainstream media, that hurts society. Well, and you know we're going to get to cranky uncle again because um, I'm not going to let us get off this call you know, before we do it. But you moved to from Australia to southeastern United States. Um, if memory serves, it's a it's a you know pretty red state around the same time as Donald Trump was elected. I arrived, I arrived in the U.S. the week after inauguration. Oh. So I've only ever known one president. And how is he in person? <laughs> no, um, it's an interesting time. I, I mean, I remember on Facebook when, you know, your timing for the move was there, and I, I didn't, you know, say, did you consider, I didn't respond saying, did you consider turning around and leaving? Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating time. I mean, but, of course, you had a predecessor experience because the liberal coalition in Australia came in before that election and kicked out the carbon tax in Australia Mm. Um, on, you know, and uh, Tony Abbott with his um, kind of weird shenanigans, like eating an onion on live TV um, and some of the deep fundamentalist Christians and Pauline Hanson with her one nation stuff and the blacksmith guy who was, you know, against wind farms and climate change, but was a swing voter because of 
you know, the proportional representation system that exists in Australia. You had experience in Australia of something approaching Trumpism. Do you, do you see parallels there yourself? Yes and no. I mean, certainly in Australia, there are similar dynamics to the US. The way I characterize it is uh, America is like Australia, but with the volume dial turned all the way up. Uh, and I see that even in my data. I've run experiments with representative Australian samples and representative US samples. And I see the same patterns, the same relationships in the data, but they're just much stronger in the US. For example, when I plot climate attitudes versus political uh, ideology, um, there's a strong relationship in the Australian data. The more con politically conservative you are, the less likely, likely you are to accept that climate change is happening. Um, but that relationship is even stronger in the US data. So, so yes, uh, there are similar dynamics, but things are just heightened in the US. Yeah, and some of that I suspect must be due to Fox News, um, because while Murdoch is Australian, um, the and there is a right-wing media in Australia, I mean, I'm thinking of Andrew Bolt as a key example of, you know, someone who would be, you know, very at home on Fox News, I think. Um, it's not quite as prevalent or bubbled, it seems, but this is me from a distance with a lot of Australian friends, not someone who's lived there and lived the experience. So do you have a, a take on Fox News versus Australian media and maybe some of the cognitive implications there? The interesting thing is the countries in the world that are the most sceptical about climate change tend to be countries where Fox, like Fox Media is prominent. US, Australia, England, Canada, and New Zealand. Um, and so, I mean, I, I don't know of any um, robust research that has um, proved a definitive link between um, Murdoch uh, media and climate denial, but it's a, it seems uh, it seems like a pretty obvious connection to me. Uh, and so I think correlation is strong. Yeah, uh, but you know, as as I will as I point out in some of my own research, correlation does not equal causation. So <laughs> I should I should be a little bit hedged in my um, pronouncements there, but um, but certainly Fox has a role in Australia, um, I'd say that it's, it's just not quite as ubiquitous as in the US. So for example, the, um, one of the ways that um, the Murdoch press have influence in Australia is through a newspaper called The Australian, which is kind of like Australia's version of the Wall Street Journal in a way. Mm -hmm. but it is, it's actually a very limited distribution newspaper and it actually runs at quite a loss, like I think millions of dollars per year. But uh, it gets into the hands of people with influence. And I think that that is, uh, it's a more nuanced way of, of influencing and polarizing as opposed to Fox News, which is a much more overt way of directly uh, communicating to the general public. And I have to say, I'm quite fascinated by this. And uh, just a couple of follow-up questions. Um, uh, do you think it's that Fox News is potentially so much more blatantly tribal, so people just get more tribal and then they just more quickly uh, absorb their tribal cues and, and run with them? Uh, or 
is it possibly due to a bigger TV culture in the U.S. or uh, or another possibility? Just um, do you think that the the, the actual um, propaganda uh, regarding climate change is is more common, more frequent, or or more effective in it for other reasons in the U.S.? I think my answer to that question is yes. As in, I think all those. <laughs> There's a, some interesting research, actually two lines of research, both in Australia and the US, that have looked at drivers of public opinion about climate change, and they found, or no, they've looked at polarization about climate change, and they found that polarization polarization is strongest in countries where um, fossil fuel usage is the highest, or in other words, where fossil fuel companies are strongest. And so I think that um, there are a whole range of different um, actors in in this situation that are all playing a part. The fossil fuel industry has poured billions of dollars into misinformation campaigns. Conservative think tank groups have been generating um, just mountains of misinformation since the early 1990s about climate change, misinforming the public. And often it's that alliance between these conservative groups and fossil fuel money that has enabled them to to do all their work. Uh, And then you have all that content going through the media, going through politicians. One of the biggest predictors of changes in public opinion about climate change is uh, elite cues. In other words, what are the political leaders saying? What are our tribal leaders saying about climate change? So it's a big melting pot. You've got the political leaders um, promoting misinformation, which comes from the conservative think tanks, which is funded by the fossil fuel company. Uh, you have to kind of holistically look at all these uh, influences. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So if I, would, I was just one last thing, and then I'm going to mute myself again. I've had a lot of laughing, by the way, listening, just uh, I'm muted. So unfortunately, <laughs> don't don't get to enjoy it. But uh, just the, I think that's one of the most fascinating things about what Trump, the Trump era, which is uh, he's basically dramatically changed Republican ideology and policy on several major topics just because he's president, he runs the show, and uh, like several things that he's just completely flipped the party on, and all of this, and the voters just basically went with it um, because they took the cue from him, despite like decades of Republican preferences and policy. So it's pretty scary and fascinating how much the cues of of one kind of. Uh, except that I would disagree. I I would say. You know that you know, having done my own analysis, and John, you probably haven't seen most of this because you have different obsessions than Zach and I do. But I've published um, assessments of Republican likelihood of success in 2020 based on the climate issue alone. I've published uh, assessments that Democratic candidates, climate change plans, and stuff like that. But the and I've, I've published a, a couple of times in different ways why conservative parties are actually regressive now and counterfactual rather than, you know, actually fully present in 2020. And Trump just saw a group that had so divorced itself from reality that he was able to take it over. They don't have a core philosophy. Um, You know, he was able to succeed at taking over the Republican Party because they'd been heavily weakened by decades of leaning into irrational wedges of the populace for 
short-term strategic gain, but it's a pyrrhic victory in the long term. So that's my take on it. Um, John, you know, you you have a, uh, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Stranger in a strange land perspective on the United States. You, you aren't like me as a Canadian who is the mouse in bed with the elephant and worried that it's going to roll over in its sleep. Um, <laughs> uh, you have Gina Reinhardt instead of the Koch brothers. You have... Uh, Liberal Party, oddly named, uh, instead of the Republican Party. But you know, what's what's your take on this? Uh, Trump has actually changed the way I do research in a small but significant way. When I came out of my PhD, um, I was convinced that political ideology was the biggest driver of climate beliefs, and to the point where that was the question I asked in my research was, I asked ideology questions. Um, What I learned over the last three years living here in the US is that tribalism is much more powerful than than even ideology. And the fact that conservative ideology changed so easily on on various fronts, whether it was um, on like free trade ideology or um, whether Russians are good guys or bad guys, that, that could so easily change dep- dependent on what the tribal leader was saying, made me realise, and, and then empirical work came out to confirm this, that political affiliation or tribalism is even more powerful than ideology. And we like to think of ourselves as believing things, but I think even more than that, we belong to our social groups. Yeah, that's so true of the evangelicals, but... Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think, reasons, I think it's a universal human condition. Yeah, the, um, the thing that I'm leaning into these days is Trump's response at a news conference when asked if he considered climate change, global warming to be a hoax. He says, no, it's not a hoax at all. It's very serious. Um, you know, so basically he accepted climate change in press. And I, I've seen climate change denialists ripping their hair out, but I've seen other ones just pivoting now and saying, you know, we've got better solutions because we're Republicans. Have you, did you see that quote? And do you did you did it trigger you to think of these types of thoughts? I think that uh, Trump's views on climate change are similar in a way to one of Australia's former prime ministers, John Howard. Mm-hmm. He originally was a climate denier, and he questioned the science. Uh, certainly, um, delayed on any climate policy, uh, and then uh, over time, it became in Australia, politically incorrect to deny climate science. Mm-hmm. And so he paid lip service to the science while still um, executing the same delays on climate policy. After he uh, was no longer prime minister, then he came clean and said, actually, I never believed the science. I was just saying that because you had to uh, to get by. Um, I think that uh, if Trump ever does mouth words that seem to support belief in climate change i i question the genuineness of those i think with him too his opinion changes on everything depending on the moment like it doesn't he doesn't have a a core ideology on almost anything that's in you know it's just all about self-preservation but uh, but i i mean i agree or ideology what's that about about trump and what's best for trump exactly exactly the most like uh like like textbook kind of narcissism However, However, this is a negative topic. 
And yeah, no, I, I was just uh, excellent I'll, cartoon book and game. We need to get to that. <laughs> I was just, I have to, we have to close this one. We can reschedule another one. Uh, but uh, I have to head off for now for the, uh, to pick up my daughter. But um, oh, no. oh, no. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's do this then. Um, February 25th, Cranky Uncle, the book is available. You can pre order it through Amazon.com. John, before we close this, and we'll try and reschedule you specific. I'm sorry we didn't get to a, a, for a long discussion of Cranky Uncle, um, but let's tease them, leave them wanting more. But I am going to say, pitch Cranky Uncle the book and pitch the game. Oh wow, you put me on the spot here. I've got to, i got to deliver uh, spontaneously. Okay, so my research for the last ten years has been how do you counter climate misinformation, and. After 10 years of psychological research and critical thinking, what I found is the way to um, counter misinformation is to explain the techniques of denial and parallel arguments um, are a really powerful way of doing that. It turns out that cartoons are the perfect delivery mechanism for parallel arguments and inoculation. And it turns out I, before I was a uh, cognitive scientist, I was a cartoonist. And so what... Uh, the Cranky Uncle book does is allows me to synthesize these two different halves of my life, the cartooning career and the scientific career. And what I'm doing is using climate science, cognitive science and critical thinking and applying it in the form of cartoons, explaining and telling the story of climate change, but also exposing all the different techniques of climate misinformation that attempt to distort the facts. Okay, so everybody, here's the deal. You, 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 Buy pre-order copies, give them to people you want to inoculate against the pernicious effects of climate disinformation. It's a hilarious, it's a great book. And Mike. it's tied to the video game. So, John, talk, give us the 30-second pitch on the video game and how people can help. Real quick, i just like to highlight, Mike, you consumed a myth. <laughs> you internalized a myth. I totally did. Based on your first, what you heard first, even though yep. it was corrected later. Great, great example of that. <laughs> Um, okay, so the big, one of the biggest challenges in inoculating people against misinformation is you're trying to make them um, do slow thinking, like system two complicated reason thinking. Um, but it is possible to turn those, those difficult reason thinkings into system one fast thinking through practice. And what better way to practice critical thinking than through a game? So what I've created or what I'm developing at the moment is a cranky uncle game where cranky uncle mentors you in how to become a climate denying cranky uncle like like himself uh, because who wouldn't from his point of view who wouldn't want to be like him uh, and he explains the techniques he uses to deny climate science and then you practice identifying those techniques so you're showing example after example often in the forms of these parallel argument cartoons and by regular practice you uh, identifying reasoning fallacies, identifying the techniques of denial uh, becomes second nature. It becomes a fast thinking um, process, a heuristic. And, and it works. And you've got uh, an acronym up there. Flick, I think is the acronym. Um, you know, you, I, I recommend everybody go and look at John's stuff and XKCD. Um, <laughs> um, but John, I, 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 would you be open to coming back and talking more about specifically the, the book and the game? Absolutely. Yeah. I'll always have, like, like any university professor, I can talk about this stuff all day. 
Excellent. And I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I'm, uh, as, as Zach said at the beginning, and I'll say at the end, I'm a big fan. Um, Zach, any last words from you before I close? Yeah, just thank you both. This has been a really fun, interesting uh, conversation. Perhaps on the next one, we, we can find a way to um, invite in listeners, uh, readers for some Q&A as well. We'll see if we can make that happen. But uh, really interesting, fascinating topic. So thank you. Excellent. And so, John, thank you very much. Um, for the people who've been listening, we've been talking to John, um, John Cook, uh, Australian uh, PhD in cognitive science, uh, cartoonist, uh, living in the United States, publishing a book that, that are, we recommend you get, Cranky Uncle versus Climate Change, uh, available through Amazon for pre-order now, and building a climate disinformation inoculation app game called Cranky Uncle that you can support by going to crankyuncle.com. Is that it, John? Yes, but the crowdfunding campaign actually ends today, January oh, 31st. So this won't help. No. Um, so, everybody, <laughs> so everybody, get the, you, you might be able to download the app on your iPhone or Android phone soon. So do that. Um, thank you very much, John. And thank you, Zach, for hosting. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund clean tech talk.